Boston Confidential, Bean Towns, True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey guys, just wanted to give a quick shout out to my sponsor this week, Podcorn. Podcorn's a marketplace for advertisers and podcasters. It's simple to use. Even I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. Basically, you just follow the prompts that the website lays out and the advertisers come to you. Now, you want to know about getting paid, right? We all do. As soon as the episode posts on the internet, the money's deposited in your account. It's that simple. If you have a podcast, you have to give PodCorn a try. This is literally the easiest way to reach advertisers, and PodCorn's done a bang-up job with the ease of use of their website. You got to check it out, PodCorn. Give it a try. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up on a podcast I've been listening to, and if you're a fan of this show, I think you're going to like this one. It's called Ivy League Murders by Sarah Alcorn, who's also a private investigator, She's got me beat. She was originally licensed in 1999. I didn't get my own license until 2001. Sarah's partner in crime is Laura McDonald. She's a lifelong true crime aficionado, and she actually has cops in the family. Together, they have this funny, dry dynamic, and they go over murders conducted in Ivy League schools or by Ivy League graduates. Fascinating. Give it a shot. Check it out. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. Ah, the Ivy League. They are the eight most prestigious colleges in the nation. And as we've seen recently, people will do or pay anything to get their kids into them. When you hear Ivy League, what comes to mind? Is it the hallowed halls of education and tradition? Professors in tweed coats pontificating about Walt Whitman? Elitism? Finals clubs? What you probably don't think of is murder. On this podcast, we focus on cases affiliated with the Ivy League, exploring the darker side of higher education. What happens when genius becomes evil? We deep dive into the stories behind the picture-perfect Ivy Leaguers who appear to have everything and throw it all away. And for what? Love? Money? Obsession? My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate, and I've been a private investigator since 1999. Join me and longtime crime diva, Laura McDonald, for Ivy League Murders. All right, guys, that was Sarah and Laura from Ivy League Murders. Great podcast. Check it out. We're on to our own episode right now, and this episode concerns somebody who has been described as completely evil, Daniel LaPlante. And for this episode, I do have an interview. I was lucky enough to be able to speak with Joe Turner, a British author. He also has a hand in the podcast Minds of Murder. 
Joe is currently writing a book about Daniel LaPlante, and that book should be out sometime mid-2021. But I was lucky enough to get a little excerpt of it by speaking with him. Joe has an incredible grasp on the facts of this case, and within our interview, he dispels several misconceptions or rumors about this case because it's all over the internet. And this case happened back in 85, 86, so there's not a lot of concrete information out there, but Joe has interviewed 50, 60 people on this, and he's really got a grasp on it. Check out Joe's website, joeturnerbooks.com. Excellent. All right, guys, we're going to get on with the episode. I'm going to check in with you after the interview. So enjoy, and I'll talk to you later. All right, Joe, we're recording, and we're live. And Joe, thank you so much for joining Boston Confidential today. Like I said, I've already given my listeners your bio, so I guess we should get right to it. We have to jump back into the time machine here, don't we? Okay, yeah. Go back to 1986, 1985. 1986, Ronald Reagan was president, and it was morning in America. Ah, good times, eh? (laughs) Not in towns in Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit about Mr. LaPlante's early life, if you could. Right. Daniel LaPlante was born in 1970 to his parents, Elaine and David. Now, if you've read any of the reports about him, you've probably seen reports of child abuse and, you know, a harsh upbringing. In reality, that's not really what happened at all. Daniel's early life was quite normal as far as kids go. He was reasonably intelligent. He was okay at school. He did well. He had a close circle of friends. He suffered very little abuse, if any, from what I've read. It wasn't until he became a teenager where things kind of started going downhill for him. He's his life of delinquency would have started around the age of 13, so we're talking around 1983. Right. Um, it wasn't anything serious. He would go around uh, Townsend starting fires, you know, doing the old cruelty to animals thing, the whole triad of what how a psychopath starts their life of delinquency. So it was around then where things started going downhill. Before that, there was very little to report on Danny's life. He was a, he was a total mommy's boy, really. Um, right. His father left when Danny was six years old. So the reports of his early life, of him being severely abused, are, are just way overplayed. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. There's no, I've, I've spoken to most of his childhood friends, some of his neighbors, people who knew his parents, and even his brother. And the reports of abuse are just completely overblown. Absolutely none whatsoever. Wow. That is diametrically opposed to all the media reports. Yeah, absolutely. So he did have a close group of friends and he did moderately well in school, you say? Yes, absolutely. He was uh, reasonably intelligent. Interestingly, I'm going to jump ahead of it here. When he was arrested and he took a prison IQ test, his IQ was found to be a little below genius level. So he obviously had a lot of intelligence right from the start. But say you do, don't want to jump too far ahead, of course. Right, right. I mean, there were signs there that he was a little bit easy to anger and irritate. He had a short temper. I mean, there was a famous incident, that, or the famous, famous incident, spoke to a, one of his classmates who said that he once lashed out at one of his classmates and threatened to stab them with some scissors in the middle of a woodwork class because someone played a practical joke on him. So that might give an insight into the kind of person he 
he was going to become, you know what I mean? Right. But yeah, as far as up until the age of 13, there's not much to report at all. Wow, that is absolutely opposed to the media reports. And he is said to have been picked on because of his hygiene, his lack of showering and all that. Did you come up with anything of that? He was, I don't want to say an outcast because he had some friends as well, but he was kind of your typical grungy kind of 80s heavy metal fan. Right. Black trench coat. I was told that he always wore this same trench coat every single day. Um, and he was kind of looked down upon by some of the different types. That I imagine the jock types. I don't get too stereotypical, but I imagine he was looked down on by those. But he wasn't severely bullied in any way. Wow. Um, if anything, he was the bully himself. So there were reports of him being mean to the younger children at his school. Wow. So, yeah, absolutely. But that comes down to another aspect of the case. Because there's so little known about the incident which later came, I think a lot of writers and journalists have just kind of ran with their imagination and kind of tried to fill in the blanks on the past. Right. They would think there would have to be some type of abuse and they're just looking for it in this little that exists, correct? When we read about serial murderers and stuff, they usually have messed up childhoods. And when people are trying to, you know, fill in the blanks for someone they don't know's childhood, they will just make up what their brain assumes. So I think he was the over-imagination, imaginative journalist. And one of the other aspects of this was he, at some point, was forced to go see a psychiatrist, and there's allegations that this psychiatrist sexually abused him. Did you come up with any information on that? Yes, that's the one area which might have an ounce of truth to it. He was sent for psychological evaluation at the age of, it would have been about 15, and yes, there were reports of some of his friends who said this particular counsellor had a kind of shady past and he was a little bit known amongst the school kids as you know, not being a very desirable person. But again, that's as far as I ever got. I tried to track down this um, counsellor myself. I wrote to the school. I tried to... So cause I assumed someone in his year would have known this guy's name because if right. he was the counsellor of the whole school, somebody would know him. Absolutely. You can't even find his name, can't find his identity. All I've really got to go on is rumor and conjecture, right. which that's all you've got. That's all you've got. So it's very possible, but not confirmed by any means. So that takes us up to when, what was he, 15, 16 in 1986, and he meets, somehow gets a phone number of a local girl. Can you tell us about that story? The way it happened was, Annie, this girl in particular, who he became infatuated with, had a boyfriend in the same class as Danny. They broke up, and then this boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, gave her number to Danny to you know, call her. Danny did. She'd never met Danny before, and he told her a few lies about what he looked like, and she fell for it. He told her that he was kind of a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, muscular, athletic type. Annie fell for it, and they arranged a date. When they met up, Annie realized that he was nothing like Danny had told her. She sort of humored him. She entertained his advances for, for one night, and then she kind of just said, no, this isn't going to work, and never called him back again. Right. He portrayed himself as like captain of the football team. It was maybe something he wanted to be, no? 
yeah, absolutely. It could have been a projection, of course. Or he just knew that that's the kind of person Annie would have gone for to get in with her, you know, just a, an excuse to, to see her in person. Right. So Annie had suffered a loss in her family recently at that time. And Daniel seemed very interested in that. Can you expound on that a little bit? Annie and her sister Jessica, their mother had recently passed away the same year in 1986, this would have been. And yeah, Danny was apparently constantly asking her the details around her death. And I believe it was cancer that that took her. Uh, And Danny was being very inappropriate and asking kind of, did she suffer in her last few weeks? You know, were you by her side when she died? And all these kind of questions that you really wouldn't ask anyone, let alone a 15-year-old girl. And I imagine that was Annie's first, you know, red flag, as they say, that Danny wasn't really... (laughs) <laughs> husband material. Yeah, he wasn't right in the head. I mean, you wouldn't ask a relative those questions, never mind on a 15-year-old's first date. Very personal. I think she sort of humored him and answered the questions, but uh, not a good start off to their relationship, you know what I'm saying? So how did their relationship progress? I know she kind of distanced herself from Daniel, but Daniel wasn't willing to give this up just yet, was he? No, of course not. They went their separate ways, and despite Danny trying to contact her on occasion, she just ignored his calls and didn't want anything to do with them. And that's when the famous incident started. So I don't know if you want to go to when Danny was caught in the walls or if you want to go from the whole start of the whole thing or when he was sort of tormenting them, because a lot of the information that you've probably read is probably completely wrong. The incidents and the events and the dates are all probably wrong from what you've seen written on the internet. Right. It was around late 1986 and the whole thing started. We don't know how Danny learned that he could get into their house and remain hidden. That's still a mystery to this day. Right. What Danny did was the Andrews home was a, you might know what this is, it took me ages to get my head around this, a split-level home. Right. I believe it's three floors. Is that correct? Or two floors? It's at least two. And when you come in the front door, you can go down to the basement or up to the kitchen living area. Okay, that makes sense. I think this was a three-tier home, three-tier spinel home. Zanny made his entrance through the front door, went downstairs to the basement, and he found in the Andrews basement, there was a toilet which had been put in in the corner of the room. And... When they built the toilet, they put a piece of wood there to act as a wall with the toilet in front. So the wood against the wall made a kind of triangle shape. Danny somehow found out he could slip behind this little piece of wood through a little six-inch gap and remain unseen in this little uh, in this little gap. And that was what he did for, I would imagine, somewhere between four and six weeks. So he would come through the front door of the Andrews house, slip downstairs, get into his hiding place, bring with him sheets and food so he could remain there for as long as he wanted and then he could torment Annie from his hiding place he could knock on the wall and they'd hear that through the whole house now some reports have said things like that Danny could go between the walls and go into different rooms in the house and stuff like that that's not true at all he went into this little cabin area and he stayed there for the whole time he didn't move so the myth around him being in the walls as such 
is just fabricated. Okay. So what he, he would get in there, he would occasionally bang on the wall. And when, because the girls were upstairs, they wouldn't really know where it was coming from. So right. they could search and find nothing at all. There were some incidents where he left messages for the girls. He wrote one in shaving foam on the wall. He would just said hello. So he'd come out of his hiding place, he'd write on the wall, and he'd run back. But he did that twice, from what I can tell. He wasn't doing it every day. It wasn't a nightly occurrence. He used to do it twice. And he was doing that from, I would imagine, early November 1986 up until mid-December 1986, when he was finally caught. There were two occasions when the Andrews girls phoned the police because the noises were just becoming unbearable. Right. The cops came. This was December the 8th, 1986. Cops came. They searched the whole house. They didn't find a thing. Of course, Danny was there at the time. He was in his hiding place. Right. But the police would do never things to search behind this small partition. The knocking and the torments continued for two more days when the girls called the police again. This was December the 10th, 1986. The police arrived. This time they searched the basement. They saw something moving in the, in the basement area. And one of the officers reached inside, found a pile of clothes, looked through it, found an arm, pulled the guy out, and it was Daniel there hiding in his hiding place. And that was how they found him. Wow. So some of the internet legend states that at one point he was dressed in the deceased mother's wedding dress and had a hatchet. That's not true? He did have a hatchet. That was true. He wasn't dressed up in anyone's clothes. He wasn't wearing the makeup. He wasn't wearing the wedding dress. He wasn't dressed as a ninja, as some of the reports say. He was there in normal clothes. How this rumor might have started is that he'd covered himself in the clothes of people in the house, not necessarily their mother's clothes. So that might have been where the kind of seeds planted, which then grew into, oh, he was wearing dead mother's clothes, dressed up. No, he was just covering himself in them, but he was dressed in his normal gown. Now, when this was going on, Mr. Andrews kind of thought the girls were just suffering this deep grief and he wanted to get them counseling. But at a certain point, he became aware that, yeah, there's something wrong here, right? Yeah. The father, Frank, he was a bus driver and he worked up until 11 p.m. at night. So he wasn't home when the girls were there. They were on their own from sort of the early afternoon coming from school up until 11 p.m which is when Danny would have done most of his kind of, you know, tormenting. So Frank wasn't really privy to the thing. He never sort of heard it himself. And I think Danny knew this. Danny knew people's schedules because he was, an, by this point, he was an accomplished burglar. He burgled quite a few homes in the area. So he was, you know, very skilled at looking at people's schedules, as you will see in the, in the next part of the story, uncovering the schedules and acting around it. So I think he knew that their father was not present when he was doing his Okay, so Daniel gets arrested, and even without the dress and the hatchet, I know he had the hatchet, but it's still a massively creepy story. So the police process him, he's a juvenile, Mm -hmm. and he goes before the juvenile court. This would be an indication a child needs some severe help here. Did he get help from the juvenile authorities in Massachusetts? No, I don't believe he did. He may have been sent back to the same counsellor that he had before. I'm not quite sure because the details around this are 
very sparse. Because Danny was 16 at the time, so I think he was technically a minor, they spared the details quite significantly. So there's not much we know about his rehabilitation. We know it lasted around a year or so, but at the time he wasn't imprisoned. He wasn't in a mental hospital or anything. His mom posted bail for him, and he was he was free to get back to his normal life, and he just had to visit a counsellor, I imagine, once a week, once a month or something. This was so much more than a regular breaking and entering or a burglary, and I just don't see how they didn't see that. Now, you mentioned Daniel's parents. What's their backstory? What's mom and dad's story with the love plants? We don't know much about them. Up until this time in Danny's life, I was told that his mother always assumed that he was innocent, always assumed that he was just playing around and wasn't didn't have a, a malicious bone in his body. Obviously, later on, we learn that that's a different story altogether. In contrast to what the internet says, it seems that they didn't give him the discipline that was necessary in order to stop him doing these horrific things. They just kind of let him do it. They were on his side for the whole thing. So that might have enabled him to do what he did. Right. By most accounts, after he gets arrested by the Townsend police and he does this, whatever penalty he pays on the juvenile level, it's about a year. A year later, he's kind of back out on the street and back home, probably before that. But take us into 1987. What's going on with him in the next year? We don't know what happened up until around October. Now, I could imagine that if he was in a rehabilitation program, he would have been on a little better behavior for the first few months that he was in, which would have taken him to sort of mid 1987. It was around October 87 where he started back on his reign of terror. We know he burgled quite a lot of houses in around October, which is where he obtained the guns that he later used to commit murder. So it was around October, November when he landed upon the Gustafsson residence, which was only a few meters away from his home, basically. Right, right. A small trail from his back garden to their back garden. I believe it was a half mile, they say, through the woods. Yeah, through the woods. It was all connected by one path. Yeah, I've got no pictures of thing. Yeah. That was when he discovered the Gustafsson residence. That was the home that he burgled on multiple occasions. We used at least two, from what my sources tell me. And that was the catalyst to the murder, which came in December. So he had burgled the house just, I don't know, a month, a little more prior to this instance in December. I just kind of wonder, and I know you're not going to have an answer, but how is there not a breaking and entry that goes down in Townsend where the cops aren't pulling Daniel out of bed every single time, you know? This is a tiny town, and he's like a gangster of burglary, you know? They might not have known they had been burgled. That's what I always assumed, because you could lose something that you just, like an ornament or something, because we don't know what he stole every time. He could have just been and done a Charles Manson and just walked around and got out again. He might have done it to prove that he could get inside and do it. And some of it is... Like, he'd break in and just move some things at times, correct? That was something he did in the Andrews residence, yes. He'd sometimes break in, go upstairs, move some glasses around, and go back downstairs. So I would imagine he did that in other houses as well, just for a laugh, I guess. 
All right. I'm going to give a little bit of disclaimer for what comes next here for my listeners. If you cannot handle graphic content, it's about to come your way. So this would be the time to go do something else. But there's going to be some graphic content in this next segment. Joe, take us to December 1st, 1987, if you would. December 1st, 1987, it would have been around 2 p.m. in the afternoon when Danny snuck into the Gustafsson residence. And that was where he found three people. Priscilla Gustafsson, pregnant mother. William Gustafsson, young boy. And Abigail Gustafsson, young girl. First point of call was Priscilla, the mother. Well, this is what we think. We don't know for sure which route he took, but chances are this is how he did it. He went up to Priscilla. He subdued her somehow, probably with the pistol, because he stolen a gun from uh, his friend's house. Right. Took that with him. He tied Priscilla to the bed. He raped her, then shot her in the head twice. My God. This is where things get a little bit fuzzy for me, because... The next step was that he abducted the children and drowned them in separate bathtubs. It's kind of messy because I don't know how the, how he managed to pull off this sexual assault without the children knowing. But what he's confirmed is that he killed Priscilla first. So unless he'd taken the children hostage as well and tied them up or forced them to watch or something like that, he's, he's unknown because he's, he's never spoken publicly about what he did. So yeah, the next point of call was William, the boy. He drowned William in the bathtub and there were some signs of um, trauma to his neck. Then the downstairs bathroom was where he drowned Abigail and that was it. Triple homicide, four if you count the unborn baby in Priscilla's stomach as well. Oh my Lord. So William was age five. He was found face down in the tub upstairs. Yes. We don't know how the order of this really went because, like you say, he's not man enough to tell anybody. And Abigail, who was about to turn eight years old, was found downstairs in the bathtub, drowned as well. She had signs of being beaten as well, correct? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, what a horror show. The whole format of it doesn't make sense to me. There's been rumors about whether Danny had an accomplice things like that, but I don't think that's the case at all. There's been some theories that it was a, originally meant to be just a burglary that went wrong. So police found a porn magazine alongside Priscilla's dead body right. in the church in the nearby. And I don't know any burglar that would bring along a porn magazine. Right. Why would they do? So there's every chance that Danny had every intention to at least sexually assault Priscilla the killing her may have been an impulsive decision or something. We don't know. Yeah, a few theories and stuff, but we don't know for sure because Danny's never told me. Yeah, it's just completely shocking. Do the police believe that Dan was already in the house when the Gustafsons returned home? That was definitely how it went down. The girls came home from school and Danny was already in the house. I spoke to one of Abigail's friends at the time, who was on the bus home with Abigail on the day she died. So, yeah, he was definitely in there. Because then by the time she got home, the murder happened within a few minutes. So, yeah, he was already in the house. 
because he was a burglar, he probably watched the their schedule, and also he knew that the father, Andrew, wasn't going to be home. Right. He was a lawyer. Right. So yeah, he knew that the biggest potential threat wasn't going to be present. He snuck in at the easiest, most convenient time, and then waited for them. Jeez. So Priscilla was a nursery school teacher, correct? Yeah. There's not too much in way of what the father did. It stated that he was calling the house because he wanted Priscilla to get a babysitter because he wanted to go out and celebrate. He had just finished some type of real estate deal. Was he an attorney or a real estate guy? He was an attorney as far as I know. I mean, he was also a businessman. He was he owned a few hotels in the, in the nearby area. So yeah, he was kind of a an entrepreneur, if you will. Right. So he doesn't reach the wife and heads on home. And he's kind of curious as to why nobody will answer the phone at home. Mm-hmm. And he discovers the wife. And he says later in court, the judge says he always remember this. They asked him, why didn't you go looking for your kids? He said, because I was certain I'd find them dead. Imagine that. And the judge said that's something that stuck with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, of course. You know, when you walk into the house and the kids are straight onto you, right. you can hear them as soon as you put the key in the door, can't you? Especially a five-year-old. So right. yeah, when you put the key in that lock and you just hear the silence, you know something bad has happened. It's such a large crime. I don't know if Daniel LaPlante is smart enough to fathom what he actually did to this family. Jeez. That's something I've always wondered. He'd done a lot of bad things in his short life. In 17 years, he burgled homes. Something we didn't cover is that he also raped a girl when he was 16 years old. In summer 1986, he raped a girl that he went to school with. And then he tormented a family from the walls of their house. And the repercussions have been quite minimal, really. Right. Basically, gotten away with everything. So, like, if I'm putting myself in his mind, I'll be thinking, I've done all these horrible things. Nothing seems to touch me. What else can I get with? I want to experience the ultimate thrill of killing someone. And he did, and he didn't realize exactly the severity of what he'd done. Unbelievable. So Andrew comes home and finds the kids. The police investigation picks up pretty quickly, and Daniel LaPlante was number one on their hit parade, correct? Straight away, they were the first ones they suspected. And the next day, they went round to his home on December the 2nd, 1987. Although his mom answered the door, Danny knew what they wanted. They obviously suspected his involvement in the murder, and then Danny ran. Right. He was on the run for the next 24 hours. So at a certain point, he takes whatever belongings he can from the house and goes on the run. And from there, he breaks into at least two homes. Is that correct? It's a strange one, what he did. For the first sort of 12 hours, don't really know what he was doing. He was hiding somewhere. We don't know where. Around 2 p.m. the next day, a woman in town noticed him and called the police. He went to a local woman's house because he wanted to steal a car. He's in his head. His plan was to steal a car, drive anywhere, and get away from all the chaos. So he, he tried to do that a few times. The first time he was going to be in, he knocked on the door of this woman's house. There was no one in, so he broke inside. And then for some reason, 
God knows why. He's changed his coat. He took his famous leather jacket off that everyone knew him as and put on a different coat he stopped on the house. Maybe to change his appearance, that's the only reason I can think of. And he left his leather coat at this woman's house. Uh, the woman came home and she saw sort of signs of life from inside her house. And at this time, the Townsend were on high alert to be on the lookout for Daniel LaPlante. Everyone knew what he'd done. And she saw someone was in her house, so she panicked. She called the police. Police got there. Danny escaped because he saw the police with his new coat. And they found his coat there, so they knew it was him. Right. A few hours later, he tried the same thing again. He knocked on someone's door. He gave them some lies about him being their neighbour. They shut the door on him. And then that was about an hour later, about five o'clock, he abducted a local woman named Pamela, lovely woman who I spoke to who told me the whole story. He took her at gunpoint. He made her drive him from Townsend to Fitchburg. Right. I'm not sure the distance between the two. Relatively close. I was there just a few miles, I imagine. Yeah. I don't know why he didn't go further. I mean, Pamela jumped out of the car and escaped of her own accord. Then she called the police and told them Danny's general direction. The police put a stop on all outbound trains at the town because they assumed he'd find a train because he couldn't drive. So they turned him to find a train and get out of the state or whatever. So they put a stop on all that. They searched all the nearby train carriages. They thought he might be in there. They found nothing. And then by some kind of weird coincidence, they found him in a nearby lumber yard. He was opposite one of the train stations. They went in there by chance and they found Danny hiding in a, a shack. Right. They described it as a dumpster. Was that accurate or was it? He was behind a dumpster. Okay. And there was a little shack where I think the, the workers lived. And they found him in there. Did he resist arrest or anything at that time? No, he just accepted it, pretty much. You know, he knew it was over by then. I think by you know, 24 hours on the run, you come to the conclusion that yeah. what life would this be? Probably better if I just gave myself up. Yeah, jeez. And they found a thirty-eight caliber weapon and some other stuff, some bullets on him. But what was really the jackpot on... Daniel's clothing, there was some hair from Abigail. Is that right? Yeah, and they matched it up to his DNA at the crime scene as well. So it was, yeah, it was a smoking gun. He couldn't deny it. Right. And so he gets arrested, and it's going to go the way everybody sees it. There's no question of guilt here. And I think if this case had come around today, there would just be a crap ton of DNA in evidence transfer, but there was enough there to put him away for life, correct? They found his semen at the scene and a used condom, which matched his uh, DNA type as well, and a porn magazine. There were pages of the porn magazine in the Gustafsson house, and the rest of the magazine was at his house, which is confusing. Why would anyone bring that? So they, they had him to rights. And there was some clothing found in the woods in between their homes that Daniel had discarded on the way, correct? Yes, yes. Put all the evidence together and you've got a, an airtight case, really. Yeah. To try to describe to you what the media response was on this case, I don't want to go so far as say O.J. Simpson-like, but on a local level, it almost was. You know, it was just how could this kid 
who is he, 16, do this to his neighbors, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, I've spoken to probably close to 50 people about this case now, all of whom were sort of, I don't want to say involved, but, you know, knew Danny or whatever. And there's just as many people who don't want to talk about it because, you know, it's like his name is the devil to them. Right. Such a traumatic case for them. They're all old people who were kind of, you know, old enough to comprehend it on the scale that it should have been taken for back then. And yeah, just many people don't want to ever visit it again, despite it being 33 years ago. Oh, man, this this case is, it just takes me down memory lane. All I can think of are those beautiful kids, and they're building a life for themselves. Life is good, and they just stumble across this lunatic, you know? Yeah, just absolute tragedy. Nothing they could have done about it. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That was all it was. And the father, the dad, survived but he didn't thrive after this. His life was essentially over too. Isn't that right? Yeah, he died in, I think it was, oh, sorry, the year escaped. I think it was 2010 or 2011 right. when he passed away. Yeah, he, he didn't do very well. So he was basically the fourth or fifth victim. Right. He went bankrupt. He really couldn't work. I think he suffered naturally from this almost life-ending depression. He did end up getting married again. Because I saw the new wife testifying in court. I know he bought a hotel with her and the investment went very badly and it kind of bankrupted him. Right. I know that was a few years, somewhere in the time of the 90s. And I imagine it was just a downhill spiral from then. Yeah. I can't imagine just coming home from work. What, what a horror show. Absolutely. So Dan goes to trial about a year, year and a half later. Mm-hmm. And there's really no case to be had in terms of defense. They challenged some of the search warrants. And I think the biggest thing that they were trying to say was the search warrants stated that this was a single family home and it was actually a multifamily home. And the judge kind of just laughed it off and said the police to all outwards appearances that that was a single family home and everything when they got in there. There was so much evidence in plain sight that it was really a done deal for Daniel LaPlante, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a trivial detail about the single-family home, multi-family home kind of thing. So there was, there was no doubt about it that he was the perpetrator. So he ends up getting quickly convicted. And I think the deliberations was like three or four hours. The jury comes back guilty. The judge gives him three consecutive life sentences. But this being Massachusetts sometime later, that is kind of found to be unconstitutional on some level, right? I don't know your legal system. I don't know. (laughs) You know what? People here don't know it. People who work in the legal system here, especially with juveniles, don't know it as well. In 2012, I believe a United States Supreme Court decision stated that You could not lawfully give a juvenile a life sentence without meaningful avenues for parole because their brains aren't developed. And so shortly thereafter, about 2013, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court followed suit, but they left a caveat if there's almost a heinous crimes provision that they can be 
given life sentences. And basically, the Supreme Judicial Court held the fact up that, yes, he can serve these sentences concurrently. So he is to serve 45 years before he is eligible for parole. That will take Daniel LaPlante to age 62. But I'm hoping that the parole board has some common sense and just never lets this guy out. He should actually be under the prison. He should be in a supermax prison, in my opinion. Instead, he's currently housed at basically a prison hospital. It's the Bridgewater State Hospital Prison for Sex Offenders. And a lot of people want to go there. Inmates want to go there because it's pretty lax. I'd say it's a medium secure type prison. So if you're thinking he's out there breaking rocks, he is not. You know what I mean? Something that no one knows other than me and someone else is that he nearly escaped prison not long after he was first put in. You're kidding me. I'll put the details in in the book, but he orchestrated a plan with his mom to escape by the use of bedsheets and a ladder. You're kidding me. And he came very close. Yeah, but he was thwarted at the last... He was very Hollywood and everything happened. It was He was thwarted at the last minute, basically. And if anyone had, had missed it, he would have been over the wall and gone. Really? So he was he was minutes from getting away with this? This was sometime in the early 90s, so he would have been in prison for probably a year or two at most. Wow. But luckily, they checked his correspondence, and they found this, this plan, and they thought he just was put into action. Yeah, so he nearly, very nearly got out. I'll put the final details in the, in the book. All right. Well, when your book comes out, I'm going to have you back on. You can get into that with us. Did you also know that Daniel LaPlante is now a Wiccan? Yes, I did. That's just some obvious religious nonsense to kind of get benefits in prison, isn't it? Right. It's just a loophole that he can get stuff. Yeah. This is passed around from murderer to murderer. So they sue the state of Massachusetts because they're not getting their Wiccan materials. And the first thing it does is it gets them out of prison for a few days that month or the next month, and they get some type of cake or some other bullshit where it just shows me that this guy is so no good. He can never stop this horseshit, you know? Still manipulating even to the last days, really. Yeah. It's just sad. Yeah. And I'm hoping the parole board has some common sense to it. There's been some issues with Massachusetts parole boards letting murderers out. One, back in the earlier of the 2000s, they let a murderer out and he shot a policeman to death and another one almost to death. So you would think there'd be some reforms. And I'm just praying that Daniel LaPlante stays where he belongs. I have one final question for you, though. Yeah, of course. Do you think Daniel LaPlante is evil? It's a subjective term, isn't it? So I think he's got some kind of psychopathy. He's got some kind of antisocial personality disorder. Whether that's considered evil or not, you know, it's it's not for me to say. I would say on a spectrum of good to evil, I'd say he's very close to the, the extreme. There's some good in him that I've seen from his childhood friends have told me. He had redeeming features back then, maybe not anymore. So I'd say, no, this is something you have to learn. You know, you can't just be born a complete piece of shit. Right. 
It's a tough question. I'd say no, not absolutely evil, but very close to it. Yeah, he's definitely on the far end of that spectrum. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And we can only hope he doesn't ever get out of prison. Yeah. Joe, will you come back on when your book publishes? Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. And you will tell us more about his attempted escape. There's a few other stories that we've not covered yet. Attempted escape, some incidents inside prison with other inmates. There's quite a few stories to tell there. So, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back on. All right, Joe. We look forward to your book coming out. And thanks for joining us on Boston Confidential. No problem. Thank you. All right, guys. That was my interview with Joe Turner regarding Daniel LaPlante. Joe didn't want to say that Daniel is evil. I'll say it. He is evil. He's right where he belongs, in prison. So let's leave him there. I'm going to leave you there. Hope you enjoyed the interview. We're going to talk to Joe again when his book comes out. Other than that, we'll talk to you soon and get ready for Christmas. Christmas.